or Hosea is still out looking for his wife, Gomer, in the back 40. Well, good morning. I'm Pastor Jay, and you just watched some Pulitzer Prize winning stuff there. I want to thank our tech department. They did a tremendous job, and a number of others who joined them in helping write the script and film and direct and act and all of that. It is amazing how long it takes to make a seven-minute movie, and uh, it was a lot of fun. I invite you to open your Bibles with me. If you're visiting with us, we are finishing a series this morning in First Peter, small letter, 105 verses at the end of your New Testament. Some of you are very familiar with this, some of you are not, but we've been in this for almost three months, and the theme of this small letter is hope, and specifically finding hope in a hostile world. And Peter's message is this, that real hope is available to those who know Christ, who have been born again, meaning they've come to God on his terms. Lots of people come to God on their terms. Peter's message is, for those who've come to God on his terms, repented, surrendered to Christ as Savior, there is something called hope, and it's really available. In the section we're looking at this weekend, Peter's reminding true Christians, those who know Christ, of their great enemy, the devil. And he finishes his letter this way. It's a very interesting way to finish the letter. It's a very interesting section. And I think you will find this interesting this morning as we talk a little bit about the history of and the theology of and the reality of the devil this morning and Satan. So we're going to do look at three things that Peter is addressing here, starting in verse 8. This is our section. If you're visiting with us, this is how we do preaching. We take section by section. Or sometimes we'll look at a theme. But today we're taking this last section and three things he's doing. Number one, he's going to talk about the reality of the devil. Peter's talking about the reality of the devil. Number two, how to avoid being deceived. Very important. Young people, this is critical. Not only understanding that Satan is very real and demons are real, but how not to be deceived by them. And then thirdly, he'll give some final greetings. But first, let's dive in. Verse 8, the reality of the devil. Peter writes, and I'm in chapter 5, verse 8, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil. Your enemy, he makes it very personal as he talks to the believers here. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. Someone he calls the devil. According to the Bible, the devil is a very real person, a very real being, B-E-I-N-G. As real as anyone here today. Now, he does not have a physical body. But you don't have to have a physical body to be a very real person. God, the Father, does not either. But he is very real. He's someone that is described by writers from all different perspectives and yet described as a very real person. From people like St. Augustine or Dante or Milton or even people like Calvin or Luther or D.L. Moody or Billy Graham. Hal Lindsey probably had the greatest selling book as, as far as sheer numbers uh, a number of years ago, Satan is Alive and Well on Planet Earth, which sold somewhere north of 20 million copies, and describes a very real being called Satan. This is a being uh, described in the book of Revelation called the dragon or the great serpent. In fact, if you're familiar with Genesis and you're familiar with the serpent deceiving Adam and Eve, 
He's not identified as Satan in Genesis. It's not until you get to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, where the dots are connected, that the great serpent actually is the devil. Book of Revelation connects those dots. Three times in the Gospel of John, John calls him the ruler of this world. That doesn't mean he's above God. That just simply means he is the ruler and the one who runs over the dark realm that John calls the world, the realm of Satan, sin, and death. And in Mark's gospel, chapter 3, he's called Beelzebub, which is from the Hebrew, which means Lord of the flies. This was a Philistine god that became associated with the devil. Very interesting. You look at someone like Karl Marx, the great architect of communism, himself an atheist, and yet when you look at Karl Marx, he was obsessed with the devil and with the occult. Uh, one of the Marxist specialists in our day, who is an evangelical Christian, Paul Kenger, teaches at Grove City College, wrote a fascinating book just a couple years ago called Marx and the Devil. Karl Marx, or The Devil and Karl Marx is the title of the book. And he quotes from a poem of Karl Marx that Marx wrote when he was 19 years old, which already shows his obsession with the demonic, and the devil. And those that knew Marx describe him in very dark terms, very dark spiritual terms. But in this poem that he wrote called The Pale Maiden, 19 years old, Karl Marx, famous atheist and architect of communism, wrote this, quote, Thus heaven I have forfeited, I know it full well, my soul, once true for God, is chosen for hell wrote Karl Marx. And then Paul Kenger goes on and he says, no other, speaking of communism and the philosophy that this atheist architect had said, no other political ideology has produced such a wretched poverty, rank oppression, and sheer violence on our planet. Something belched out of hell by Karl Marx. Another famous term for the devil is Satan. And we get this from the Old Testament where the Hebrew word Satan is used almost 50 times or just over 50 times. Usually it's used with an article, meaning the. So it's not normally a personal name in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible. Old Testament was written in Hebrew and Aramaic. So it's usually in the Hebrew text, the Satan. And the literal translation of that Hebrew word is the accuser, the accuser. And so you come to a verse like Zechariah 3.1, and it's the same word that shows up in Job 1, the accuser appeared before God. But in Zechariah 3.1, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and the text says, and the Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. So if you just translate that literally, and the accuser standing beside him to accuse him. When you go to the New Testament, the word Satan moves beyond just a title and actually at times appears to become a name. And Jesus used it this way. For example, in Matthew 4, where he's being tempted out in the Judean wilderness, and he says, away from me, Satan. So there he uses it actually as a name. And he does a similar thing in Matthew 16, where he rebukes Peter but he rebukes Satan behind Peter, and he says, get behind me, Satan. So the Bible's very clear. 
Young people, hear this. Bible is very clear. The devil is very real, whatever name he goes by. He is a very real being, highly intelligent, highly evil, highly dedicated to the destruction of God's people. And what's interesting is when you talk to believers in other cultures, this comes out even more. A couple of years ago, Becky and I were able to visit several countries in Latin America, and we talked to a number of missionaries and pastors. And one of the things that came out of that was the fact that these folks deal regularly with the demonic. In fact, three different leaders down there told us that they regularly deal with demon possession and performing exorcisms. And we talked to the others who spoke openly of dealing with demonic spirits on a regular basis. Now, one of the questions that comes up is, who was Satan before he became evil and how did he fall? Why did he fall? Well, what we know of him is he was a beautiful angelic being. We're never told why he instigated his rebellion. But we are given a glimpse two times in the Old Testament about how it came about. And I want to go to those two passages. And let me say before I do this, in these two passages, some of you are familiar with these, but some of you are not. In these two passages we will look at, a human king is being rebuked by God, but the language being used goes way beyond a human being. And it's interesting that the language being used looks like it's actually a description of when Satan initially rebelled against God and was thrown out of heaven. So I want to take you to those two texts. They are Ezekiel 28, I encourage you to turn there, and Isaiah chapter 14. Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. First of all, Ezekiel 28. Let me just briefly set the stage if you're not familiar with the book of Ezekiel. This is a rebuke of the king of Tyre, T-Y-R-E, which is basically modern-day Lebanon, an evil king. And God is rebuking him. But it's interesting that when you look at the language used to rebuke this evil king, this human king, the language goes way beyond anything that fits a human being. And I think you'll see as I read this, Ezekiel 28, even if you're familiar with this text, it's a good text to review and go over with your kids as a reminder that Satan is very real and how he fell. I'm going to begin in verse 11. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre. Again, this is modern day Lebanon. And say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says. This is what the sovereign Lord says. So listen to the language used of this human king being rebuked by God. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in, what's the text say? Eden. Well, the king of Tyre was never in Eden. This doesn't even make sense applied to him literally. The garden of God, every precious stone adorned for you. Drop down to verse 14. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Verse 16. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence. You sinned, so I drove you in disgrace from the mountain of God. I expelled you, guardian cherub. Interesting. From among the fiery stones. Your heart became 
proud on the account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to earth and made a spectacle of you before kings. I think you see as we read that, it goes way beyond the king of Tyre and is describing the power behind the king of Tyre, clearly the devil himself. And even giving us a glimpse of his original rebellion against God. We don't know when it occurred, and we're never told why, but we're given a glimpse. The other glimpse comes from the book of Isaiah, again, a rebuke of a human king, this time the king of Babylon. And again, you have language that doesn't fit a human king. It goes way beyond a human king and describes the power, clearly an evil, dark power behind this human king. So Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 to 15. The king of Babylon is being rebuked. Isaiah 14, verses 12 through verse 15. How you have fallen from heaven morning star, I'll come back to that in a second, son of the dawn. And remember, this is a human king being rebuked. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, would you notice, please, five I wills. Shortest definition of sin is what? I will. You're going to read five of these right now. Ready? Starting in verse 13. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you were brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. That goes way beyond describing the king of Babylon. Shortest definition of rebellion, young people, shortest definition of sin, I will. Reminds me of a song by a guy named Frank Sinatra. I did it, what? My way. That's the shortest route to hell. I did it my way. So you see, I will, I will, I will. By the way, I said but verse 12, morning star. That's translated by the Latin Vulgate as Lucifer. That's where we get the word Lucifer, which is also the Dutch word for match or light question. What in the world could the devil have been thinking in rebelling against God? Why would he do this? And again, the answer is not given in Scripture. We're not told. You just have the five I wills leading us to conclude, I think pretty accurately, that this being craved independence, craved recognition, craved being worshipped, and he wanted to be his own God. Some of us here today are on that same path. We don't want anybody telling us what to do. We bristle at authority. We want to do it our way. My question is, how's it going? And how's it working out for you? At the core, hear this, kids, young people especially, hear this. At the core, all wrongdoing, all rebellion against God is a deep, angry, twisted exaltation of self. That's what it is. It's I will. I will. I will do it my way. No one's going to tell me what to do. And that is rooted in the same hatred for the things of God and of God himself that got Satan thrown out of heaven. Now, with all this being said, 
I want to offer three reminders about Satan that are very important to keep in mind. As you listen to Christians talk, especially in Western culture, three things that are very important to keep in mind when it comes to the devil. These are in no particular order, but they are very important. Number one, God is more powerful than the devil. You may say, well, that's like a no-brainer. Well, it is a no-brainer biblically, but if you listen to the way a lot of us talk as Christians, we almost talk as if God and Satan are in a dead heat and in a close finish. And while most true Christians believe God is more powerful than the devil and will ultimately triumph, they don't talk that way and they don't think that way. They forget what Martin Luther said. Martin Luther has a famous phrase. You may have heard it. The devil is God's devil. Why is that important? Well, there's several reasons that's important. Number one, to remember that Satan and his angels serve a greater purpose than their own. Two, so that we never forget that God is sovereign over Satan and created him. And everything Satan does is under God's sovereign power. And number three, it reminds us that Satan and his angels are exactly on schedule doing exactly what God intended for them to do. And number four, that they will be punished and they will be punished for all eternity. That means that Satan, hear this, Satan's mutiny and rebellion are strategically fulfilling God's purposes down to the smallest detail. God is far more powerful than Satan. He created him. And so as you talk about, make sure you don't use language that sounds like they're somehow equal, not even close. Second reminder, although Satan is invisible, he is not omnipresent. Now, what's that mean? If you listen to us talk, if you listen to Christians talk sometimes, it sounds like Satan's everywhere. Satan did this to me this way. Satan did this. Satan did that. The actual individual we call the devil is only one person just like you, and he can only be in one place at one time. He can't be everywhere at once. He can't be in Belfast and in Boston and in Brazil and Budapest all at the same moment. It's impossible. He has an army of demons that are around him, and it's important to remember, though he can't be everywhere, he has demons everywhere. A number of years ago, somebody said they got up and rebuked all the demons in Washington, D.C. to leave. I think we have good evidence that they did not. <laughs> Third reminder when it comes to demons and to Satan, and this one is rampant in Christian talk. And it's this, not all difficulties, trials, and troubles come from Satan and demons. Some Christians, a lot of Christians talk as if every setback, every discouragement, every flooded basement, every flat tire, every illness is somehow connected to Satan. And it's just not true biblically. It could be, but there's a lot of other reasons for that. Number one, we live on a fallen planet that is inhabited by disease and sin and wickedness. That generates its own set of headaches, heartbreaks, disease, and death. That's critical to remember. You live on a very dangerous, I live, we live on a very dangerous fallen planet that's under a curse. And so a lot of what happens to us is the byproduct of living on that dangerous dark planet. Also, we make poor choices sometimes, and we get in poor ruts, and we get in bad patterns of life, and we reap consequences from sin and choices we have made, sometimes 
consciously, sometimes unconsciously, and we end up in very dark places. And then thirdly, God sometimes appoints affliction. And so we just need to be careful that we're speaking accurately about our difficulty, our setback. We may not know the reason. Peter reminds us in chapter 4, verse 19, so then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator. Well, right there we know that sometimes it is God who appoints setbacks, trials, difficulties. It is God who sends affliction. And so we just need to be careful attributing everything, oh, that was Satan. Sometimes we give him way too much credit when we're actually living on a very cursed, dark, dangerous planet. And sometimes we're reaping the benefits, or not the benefits, we're reaping the consequences of our own foolishness and sin. Or maybe God is actually at work, and he's the one throwing obstacles in our path to get our attention and to bring holiness and sanctification in our life. All right. Secondly, this morning, moving on in 1 Peter, how do you avoid being deceived by this very real malignant evil creature and his army of demons? And Peter gives two commands in verses 8 through 11, how to avoid being deceived. These are important. Two commands. Number one, be alert. Verse 8, be alert. It's in the imperative mood. That means it's a command. This is not just a suggestion. Christians are being commanded to understand their enemy, not be obsessed with him, but to understand him. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. What's Peter's point? Not being alert is dangerous. Not being in the know is deadly. And if we just stick our head in the sand and say, I don't want to know anything about the devil, I don't want to know anything about Satan, is actually a dangerous strategy because then we don't understand our enemy. Again, can you get too obsessed? Absolutely. C.S. Lewis warns against that in his classic screw tape letters. Highly recommend if you've not read screw tape letters to read it. It's not inspired, it's not scripture, it's not infallible, but it's incredibly insightful as a senior demon is discipling and mentoring a junior demon how to trip up his patient. It's a very chilling, insightful book. But be alert because if we're not alert and not aware of the enemy's strategy, we will be taken down. And it's interesting, there's a lot of parallels here with military strategy and with history and being alert to the enemy. A couple years ago, I read Sun Tzu's famous classic, The Art of War, the ancient Chinese general and philosopher. Sun Tzu, there's no evidence that he knew Christ, no evidence he believed in God. But he talks about the importance of dominating on the battlefield and of understanding your enemy and their strategy and paying attention and being alert. And that if we don't, it's deadly and it's costly. And he describes that brilliantly in his classic, The Art of War. And what's interesting is if you look at history, there are tons of examples of countries, of nations, of generals, of leaders who were not paying attention, ignored clear signs to the contrary, and were defeated. There's just abundant examples from our own Civil War, from World War II. One of my 
favorites I just came across this week was a reminder of how Singapore fell. Very interesting how the British ignored the very clear signs. Becky and I have been in Singapore a couple times. It's beautiful. It's interesting. It's an island, it's a country, and it's a city <laughs> all in one. And it's a very crowded place right now. But the British held on to it for almost 150 years. And by 1941, having occupied it for that long, the Japanese were on the move. They were coming down through Malaysia and down to Singapore, which is the very tip of Malaysia. And right after they attacked Pearl Harbor, the Japanese were striking in Malaysia and moving towards Singapore. And it's interesting, the British, who had very clear, I was reading this, I was surprised to read, be reminded how clear the intelligence was, how clear the signs were that the Japanese were coming down through Malaysia and coming to Singapore, and the British utterly ignored all the signs. In fact, their phrase was, the Japanese cannot take us, and Singapore is unconquerable. And they just kept repeating that, even though they had regular intel telling them the exact opposite. And it, 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 it proved to be deadly. Singapore suddenly just fell in six days. The Japanese moved in. It was a massacre. Estimates put the death toll between 20 to 30,000. And the lesson was that Britain paid a very high price for not being alert and ignoring the enemy's strategy, obvious strategy, that was very clear. And that is why Peter says, you better know your enemy. Don't be obsessed with them. Don't live in fear of them. But you better know your enemy. You better know what they're doing, what they're up to, and their strategy, lest you fall prey. The second command, after be alert, is resist and stand firm. Critical one. Verses 9 through 11. So be alert, first of all, and then dig in your heels and resist and stand firm. Verse 9. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast to him. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Reminds me of another verse, James 4, 7. Resist the devil. You know the rest of the verse? And he will flee. That's right. He will flee from you. According to Ephesians 6, the way we best resist the devil is not by rebuking him, not by having a power encounter with him, not by commanding demons. The best way, according to the Bible, to resist the devil, the best way to, to take care of spiritual warfare and engage in spiritual warfare is the normal Christian life under the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the daily living of the Christian life and indulging in the same disciplines that God's people have always done in order to resist the devil. Like what? Immersion in Scripture, prayer, fasting, biblical community, and focusing on our identity in Christ. Ephesians 6 is very clear. The way you combat the devil, the way you go at the devil is not rebuking demons, not commanding demons, not having some kind of power encounter, the way you resist, dig your heels in and combat the devil is the normal Christian life and the spiritual disciplines that God's people have always done. Resisting Satan 
by staying in Scripture and pursuing holiness and remembering who we are in Christ. It was Martin Luther, the great German theologian 500 years ago, who said, when the devil comes knocking at the door of my heart, I send Jesus to the door. And and Jesus says, Martin Luther used to live here, but he doesn't anymore. I live here. And then the devil will see the nail prints on Christ's hands, and he will immediately flee. Luther had such a way of putting things. That's how you resist the devil. You stay in the book, you stay on your knees, and you pray because he is seeking to take down the people of God, and he's doing it at a good clip. And it happens regularly because we fall to his schemes, and we don't even realize it sometimes. Lastly, Peter gives final greetings. This is a letter, and even the last paragraph is inspired by God. These are the infallible words of God. Sometimes we come to things like this, and we're like, eh, it doesn't, it still matters. Every word is inspired by God. So verses 12 to 14, Peter is giving his final greetings. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. There's another challenge, stand fast. She who is in Babylon, what does that mean? She is referring to the church. Babylon was code for Rome. Most early Christians viewed Rome and the corruption and wickedness there as a version of ancient Babylon. And so that was very common to call Rome Babylon. So really, he's saying the church in Rome, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ. This ties directly into the whole theme of Peter, finding hope in times of suffering. All right, if we wrap up this series and we close, here's how I want to do it. I want to pose the question, how can a Christian, true Christian, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, be protected from Satan? Actually, I'll even broaden it. How can anybody here this morning make sure they're protected by and protected from Satan? And so three things biblically, and then we'll finish. Number one, we must be born again and possessed of the Holy Spirit. That's the only way to be protected by the Holy Spirit. The Bible says the only way any of us can ultimately be protected from Satan is to repent and believe the gospel, to be born again, possessed of the Holy Spirit, and in Christ. Here's how John put it in 1 John 4, 4. Writing to those who know Christ, who are clearly born again, John says in John 4, 4, greater is the one who is in you, the Holy Spirit, than the one who is in the world. Again, John's not just writing to religious people. He's writing to those who know Christ. And he's saying, the Holy Spirit inside you is greater than the one who is ruling the world. Remember that. And that's a very critical reminder. In other words, the Bible says this. You need more than just a teacher. You need a Savior. A Savior who will both deliver you from judgment, but then fill you with the power for godly living. One of the reasons, friends, that so many people who go to church and are religious fall to Satan's schemes is that they're not real Christians. They've never been born again. They're not owned by the Holy Spirit, and they don't have the power of the Holy Spirit inside them. And so they are easy prey for the devil as he prowls about. The gospel is Jesus is not only our Savior, He's our power. 
And he came to indwell and to ignite. And we need that if we're going to stand against the devil. Second thing, we have to adjust our expectations. A lot of Christians forget, phrase I like to use, we forget we are on a battlefield, not a playground. And there's a big difference. Playground, there'll be a few injuries here and there. Battlefield, there's going to be casualties. And we have to remember we are on a battlefield. We face a foe that is wounded, but he is not finished yet. He will be one day, but he's not yet. He is still vicious, he is cunning, and he is intent on attacking and taking down God's people by knowing their proclivities, their personalities, their temperament, their background, their characteristics, and using those things to trip them up and take them down. And we have to be aware and adjust expectations. We're not just here to be on a playground. We are in a battlefield. Third reminder about the devil. And that is this. The best way to deal with him is follow the example of Jesus. What did Jesus do in the Judean wilderness when he came mano y mano with the devil? I can hear E.V. Hill in Boulder, Colorado in 1993 yell out, Hit him! What did he do? He threw scripture at him three times. He quoted the book of Deuteronomy, one of Jesus' favorite books of the Bible. You say, how do you know that? Because he quotes it all the time. He loved Isaiah, he loved the Psalms, and he loved Deuteronomy. And three times he threw scripture at the devil. And E.V. Hill had all 50,000 of us at Folsom Stadium there in Boulder yelling out, hit him, hit him, hit him. Hit him with what? Hit him with the word of God. It is impossible to resist Satan if, unless we're immersed in this book and living by the book. Immersed in scripture, killing sin, forgiving others, and preaching the gospel to ourselves. Otherwise, what's going to happen? We're going to veer off course, lose perspective, lose hope, get bitter, disobey, get disillusioned, and end in very dark place. The price tag, friends, for disobedience is very high indeed. Very high. There's an old saying. Some of you know the saying well. If you think the price tag of obedience is high, try the price tag for disobedience. It's a lot higher. And most of us know that by experience. Thank God for Peter. Thank God he was a man just like us, but a man who became possessed by the Holy Spirit and was used by God for this great letter. Father, we thank you. We want to thank you that the Peter in the Gospels is so different than the Peter in the book of Acts. And that the Peter in the book of Acts was a man possessed of the Holy Spirit and became a death-defying apostle. And I pray this morning for those of us here who have not been living the Christian life seriously. Either we're not saved or we're not taking advantage of the Holy Spirit. And I also pray this morning, Father, for those who are not saved, that today might be the day they come to faith and see that they're religious, but they're on their way to hell and that they need Christ as their Savior. And we pray this in his mighty name. Amen.